0: I want to take you on a journey from the planet to the parish from the global to the local from the earth in space to the earth beneath our feet from the lonely glowing speck of dust at the edge of the galaxy to the soil that we kneel upon and sift through our fingers and to which we ultimately return dust to dust These are contrasting perspectives of our home. One vertiginous, the other intimate. One from the outside in deep space, and the other from the inside in deep time. On very different scales, but still connected. And we have to see them as connected if we are to live respectfully and sustainably as part of nature.
1: Welcome to another episode of Glam City. On Glam City, we speak to the legends working in Australia's galleries, libraries, archives and museums. I'm Anna Clark, a historian here at the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS. This is our second episode in our two-part series with the Griffith Review on their issue, Writing Country. In the first part of this series, we spoke to Kim Mahood about her essay, Lost and Found in Translation. If you haven't listened to our conversation with Kim yet, I highly recommend it. You can check it out on our website. In this episode, we're joined by author and historian Tom Griffiths. Tom's an Emeritus Professor of History at the Australian National University in Canberra, and he's written extensively on environmental history and the nature of historical understanding and history-making. His essay, The Planet is Alive, Radical Histories for Uncanny Times, is also featured in Griffith Reviews number 63, Writing the Country. Welcome, Tom.
0: Hi, Anna. Thank you.
1: Firstly, what prompted you to write... This essay, Radical Histories for Uncanny Times, The Planet is Alive.
0: I think history is undergoing a really interesting revolution in the last decade or two in response to the ecological crisis. And I wanted really to give some voice to that view, that history, in a way, I think as a discipline in the 19th century, when it became really professional and academic, defined itself against nature. You know, it divided history off from prehistory, animals from humans, um, civilised from primitive, culture from nature. These kind of divisions are embedded in the professional character of history from its foundation. So how does a discipline which has really evolved to tell the story of, of the extraordinary character of humanity of how different it is from nature, and indeed how civilization is a kind of triumph over nature, a mastery over nature, how does that discipline cope with the ecological crisis, which demands that we think very differently?
1: Mm. I guess most people would think about history in those terms, wouldn't they? It's the sort of thing that they learned at school. It's the sort of thing that you might see at a museum. Um, it's the sort of thing that perhaps politicians debate over, or you might come across it if you're at an Anzac Day march or something, but you don't actually necessarily think about it as the world around you, something you can touch or inhabit or be in, or that might change in your own lifetime just by watching a tree grow or a river dry up, as we've seen in Western New South Wales.
0: Exactly, yes. So somewhere embedded in us, and it's it's really fostered by our history making, is this idea that nature is something... We do things too. Mm. It doesn't itself have agency or power. Mm. But that's the the era we're now living in, or perhaps I should say epoch, the epoch of the Anthropocene, uh, which we'll talk a bit about perhaps, um, is really saying, you know, humans can no longer really look at their destiny on this planet mm. as being separate from the fate mm. of all species,
1: and why does this mean? Why is this such a radical re-inscription of what history is? Why does this require some kind of, you know, revolutionary break with historical practice in order to accommodate that history of the natural world, if you like?
0: It's because of those foundations in in uh, history being defined by literacy, mm-hmm. and I think very much by nationalism, and that's generated wonderful history and still very important part of what. Uh, creates uh, history today. But ingrained in that is this view that history tells the story of humanity uh, and that nature is the stable stage upon which that human drama is played out. Mm. And what environmental history or ecological history, ecological consciousness demands of us, planetary consciousness demands Mm. of us, is that we, we see the story of all those other species, all those creatures that we share this planet with, that they are part of the drama, that their drama is intertwined with our own. Uh, and we've got to find new stories and new ways of telling those stories. And the exciting thing is, is it's happening. You know, history, as we know and as we celebrate, is an extremely creative and dynamic discipline. It's always that dialogue between the present and the past. And so it's always changing. Every generation rewrites history. We need to because of it. it's that dialogue. And um, so I think... As we speak, there are really fascinating radical histories that are emerging that are telling the story of, uh, of changing nature, of mm. humanity in nature, and they're stories that we need in order to behave and think differently in the 21st century.
1: So these are, in a sense, our generation's questions of the past, if you like. Yes. And in order to answer those questions, we need new ways of doing history
0: indeed so the climate crisis for example has propelled historians back into the past to look at those natural variations in climate going back thousands of years and the way in which they affected human history so we know we're inhabiting an unnatural variation an anthropogenic variation but there is a long history of natural variations in the climate for which are caused by different reasons that go back very small variations but which produced, for example, the medieval warm period about 1,000 years ago or the the Little Ice Age, which went from about uh, 1,300 to 1,800. And these minor variations in average Earth temperatures of less than one degree Celsius had uh, at times a cataclysmic impact on societies of those times. And this is the way in which I think history is really contributing to our understanding of the climate crisis. We're able to show... I think that my, even minor changes in average earth temperatures can have dire consequences for human society. So when people hear all of the discussion about, oh, we're trying to limit to two degrees Celsius change, they think, but
1: two degrees, what's that? You mm. know? I was like, cold but, this morning, exac- I can go another two degrees.
0: Exactly. You know, it might be good to have it a bit warmer. That's the kind of variation we get you know, in mm. a few hours in an afternoon. Mm. That's why it's so important to have stories about real past lives and Mm. societies that show you that if that average earth temperature goes up even a little bit, you can have really quite profound impacts on Mm. politics, society, economics. There's famine, disease, there's war. You know, climate disrupts all of these other things. It has feedback effects on the social world. Mm. And so... I think there's some really exciting history emerging. I'm proud of what historians mm. are doing, and I do feel it's important particularly in arguing against the fossil fuel denialists who often say, "Oh, it's all about, you know, future modeling." It's not. It's so much about the past. Mm. It's about understanding what's happened in the past and we're using archives of ice and sediment and documents and oral history. You know, it's very mm. much a science humanities mm combination mm. in understanding what we're living through at this moment.
1: There's a lot that scientists can learn from history. I suppose your argument in the essay is that you can populate the past with people by using history. You know, We can get a sense, as you just said then, of the mini ice age or shifts in climate, or even 10,000 years ago, there are people working on um, the transmission of Indigenous oral histories of the great ice age 10,000 years ago. But if we're going you know, even further back in time, what sort of archives, historical archives, can scientists use? And conversely, what sort of science can historians use to kind of do that collaborative history work, I guess, to populate that deep time that is very hard to kind of imagine what a person thought or felt or how they lived, you know, three, four, five thousand years ago?
0: Yes, that's such a challenge to our discipline of history, isn't it? And it's a challenge which we in Australia confront perhaps more profoundly than anywhere else on the planet, you know, because during my lifetime, the um, depth of human antiquity in Australia has um, increased tenfold or more. And we now realise the the long history of humans on this continent. We now have a human history here of of 65,000 years or more how do we write that history? Mm. How do We have to.
1: There's an ethical obligation.
0: There is. Yeah. That's where Australian history begins. Perhaps it begins even earlier with an understanding of Gondwan and biotic origins, you know, right back millions of years. I think history needs to go back mm. be pre-human.
1: This is so different to the 19th century idea of history being about civilisation, in inverted commas, about nation and about, you know, literacy. We're talking about histories that are beyond the idea of literacy altogether.
0: Absolutely. And uh, we need those other histories too, the, the politics, the nationalism yeah. and so on. But this is a new kind of history that we desperately need now. And so how do we not just marvel over ancient dates in Australia of human, first human colonisation, but how do we actually tell a story about mm. changing peoples in a changing land? And mm. that does involve being alert to oral traditions involves being alert to um, ethnography that was done for example in the 19th century that's done today in terms of understanding Aboriginal societies and Torres Strait Islander societies. It's drawing on such a range of archives that it demands we be interdisciplinary and in terms of sort of the background world picture an interesting archive that that I've found compelling is the archive of ICE because I uh, a few years ago I wrote a history of uh, Antarctica and had the um, privilege of travelling to Antarctica and, and being on a ship of scientists, who are, many of whom are glaciologists, and just what we've learnt in the last half century about ice as an archive, ice that's trapped all those bubbles of, of air from past atmospheres that enable us really to see where we sit on the trajectory of long-term history of the atmosphere. It's, it's that kind of archive that has enabled us to understand how dire our predicament is at the moment. Without these long-term views, you don't know quite where your present moment sits. And I think that's, that's what history does. You know, we know that it gives back a kind of integrity to past societies on their own terms, but it also enables us now, here and now, in the early 21st century, to understand our predicament. Where do we sit on changing trajectories? And therefore, what is our responsibility at this moment?
1: If you're a historian, or if one is a historian who has been trained, you know, at school, maybe at university even, that history is about the written archive, Um, it's people who make history... Um, you know, leaders, we can all remember the sort of men with beards and top hats who were the founding fathers of Australia if we were awake in that history lesson in Year 9. What does it require of us? Do we need to relearn how to do history? You know, for us to listen to these new archives, I mean, they're not new, they're ancient, but for us to listen perhaps for the first time to these archives as historians, what does it require of us?
0: I think we've got the training we need uh, historians are the gifted amateur, if you like. That's what Alfred Crosby called us. And by that, he meant that we're the ones who don't kind of force our expertise onto others. We're the great listeners. Mm. And no boundaries scare us. You know, we, we are prepared to jump fences and go where others are unwilling to go. <laughs> with our boots. Uh, with our boots. <laughs> and, and that our real skill is is holism. It's to bring it together. It's context. And so we need all those other experts but, you know, we just uh, stride in and and seek their advice and we listen and we bring it all together and we tell stories. Mm. So we have these skills. These are the traditional skills of historians. And we're just uh, expanding, if you like, our subject matter. I think that's what we're doing. We're looking beyond the merely human towards other creatures and realising our kinship with them and thereby, I think, uh, looking for a, a stronger sense of belonging in in country, uh, very much in the Indigenous sense, inspired by that, Mm. but also I think in our own times we're beginning to see, recognise the planet as one whole self-regulating organism of which we are a part.
1: We've talked about here a little bit about the Anthropocene, the idea of deep time, of history extending not only past human life into the natural world, but also extending past, I guess, modern human life into deep time. Um, And you also mention, talk about the sixth extinction in your essay, that humans have wiped out about two thirds of the world's wildlife in just the last half century. It's an extraordinary idea that we are, you know, at the same time we're being called upon to listen to the world, we're still acting out onto it and changing it irreparably.
0: It's shocking, isn't it? And that metaphor, the sixth extinction, is a deep-time perspective. It's a deep-time metaphor. It's saying the other five extinctions, you have to go back tens of millions of years, Mm. hundreds of millions of years, to look at the previous five extinctions. The last one was when an asteroid struck the Earth 65 million years ago. That was the fifth extinction. Wow. So we're living through the sixth extinction and, and the it's evidence... it's on us. It's on us. Yeah. Then we can only make sense of it by having an immense sense of time that is utterly vertiginous and awe-inspiring and, and frightening, really, when you look at the impact of humans on that sort of scale. So, yes, I think these metaphors, the Anthropocene, the idea that you know, we we've, we've have a new epoch, geological epoch in Earth history that is created by the power of humans over nature and the idea of the sixth extinction, that this sixth extinction might be provoked and prompted and brought into being by human action. Both those metaphors of deep time make us go back Mm. such a long time, way beyond what historians traditionally did and generate therefore a very different kind of history.
1: It's also a kind of call to arms, isn't it? Because it's not about just recognising the sort of implications of that statement, both the sixth extinction but also the idea of deep time. It's also, you know, with a nod to the future. You know, historians telling this story, it's not valueless. It's actually trying to make an impact and change the way people think about the world in which they live.
0: It is. And I think many environmental historians grapple with this sense that what are the purposes of delivering apocalyptic history, you Mm -hmm. know, doom-laden history, does that depress people? Does it make them more passive, perhaps, than active? Uh, And I do feel that we need to have hope in our histories, and so my essay finishes with a little suggestion of hope, as do a number of the others in the volume, including yours, Anna. And I think that's important because hope delivers a story with some opportunity for positive human agency in it, and it therefore, I think, can encourage people to feel, you know, I understand better, and I can do something about Mm. it. And we shall do something about Mm. it.
1: And that we're connected.
0: And that we're connected, absolutely.
1: You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. On this episode, we're joined by author and historian Tom Griffiths to talk about his essay, The Planet is Alive, Radical Histories for Uncanny Times, which is available in the recent Griffith Review, number 63, Writing Country. Tom, we've talked a lot about your essay and about some of the, I guess, the the collisions between the deep past and the present, um, between the intimate history of... Of our own lives and the bigger sort of global history of what our own lives in, in the universe mean. You had a very long career in environmental history in Australia, one of, I guess, an interdisciplinary subject or field of research that makes those intersections and those collisions between big and small and intimate and, and strange, I suppose, not that foreign to you, perhaps. I was thinking about as I was coming here to the interview that your own career, in a way, has tracked that field of study of environmental history. You know, over the last sort of thirty, forty years, can you tell us how you became interested in environmental history? Because I think it leads in really nicely to what we've been talking about today.
0: Yes, I became early on a public historian, so trained in the university, but. Looking for opportunities to practice history outside the academy, worked for the State Library of Victoria for many years as a, as a field officer uh, collecting manuscripts and pictures for the Australiana Research Collections, worked for the Museum of Victoria as a consultant in social history, worked for the Department of uh, Conservation and Environment in Victoria. And it was really that last job of conservation and environment where I found myself as a historian for a government agency. Uh, my task was to look at the, in a way, the, the ugly bits in the natural landscape, was the way it was mm. seen. You know, the old fallen down sawmills or abandoned mine shafts and so on that we could draw fences around and put interpretation signs in front of and see as cultural heritage. And the challenge, I think, of that kind of work at that time, and this is the late 1980s, was a- actually. The culture is attached to the nature. Mm. They're part of one another. They mm. grow out of the same. very similar kinds of dynamics. And we can't understand the cultural heritage without understanding the natural heritage mm. and vice versa. So out of that grows environmental history, which seeks to bridge those disciplines of science and humanities. So out of that was work that I found myself doing about the Mount Nash forests in Victoria. And... I first of all thought I was writing a traditional history of what humans did to the forest. Then gradually, under the tutorship of people living in the forest, foresters, ecologists, scientists, I realised that I had to tell the biographies of the trees. And once I did that, that demanded a, immediately demanded a very different kind of history. I had mm. to go back millions of years to understand where they come from. I had to understand long indigenous occupation and use of those forests, the patterns of fire. And that really began to make my that more traditional history itself change. Mm. And the key to recent human history in the forest is also fire, mm. uh, as we know from events like Black Saturday.
1: If if the sort of conventional historical archive of Victoria, the Mount Nash Forest in Victoria, for example, would be found in the State Library of Victoria and the archives, the State Records Office, and they might begin in what, the 1830s, 1840s, you're talking about an archive which is tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years old. What can that sort of history work tell us that those historians or histories that are located in, you know, the paper and the building archives, what can those archives tell us or add to the other archives, the more conventional historical archives that many of us are more familiar with?
0: It means that the humans and their records are humbled by the other creatures and their long dynamic in those places. So it suddenly appeared that humans, puny humans, living for only maybe 80 or 90 years, were trying to, to manage 100-metre-tall trees that had existed there for millions of years and fostered fire regimes that had no care for human society at mm. all and that were fatal. On, on the bad days to human society, you suddenly get that feeling that how can you write history without understanding the, those other creatures? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yes, it's an archive. The different kinds of archives, different kinds of evidence, different kinds of storytelling change the way you tell the stories of the humans. And it's, it's, it's humbling.
1: And, and humans aren't necessarily the centre of that story anymore.
0: Of course, in the end, we are humans telling stories for us. And so I'm happy with the human being at the centre of history. But it's a much more enlightening story and a more humbling one mm. uh, if we do pay attention to the agency of, of other creatures on the planet. And And the crisis we're living through at the moment is absolutely demanding that politically, that we be aware of that and act on it.
1: The, I guess the... Emergence of environmental history happens at the same time as environmental, the environmental movement. Um, and in Australia in the 1970s and 80s, for example, the movement for land rights, for Indigenous recognition in history, the sort of, you know, breaking open um, Australian history to include other voices and other landscapes and other archives. As we mentioned before, there's a certain ethics there, isn't there, of... An understanding that empirical archival history wasn't enough to tell the history of Australia. And that's something that we're still going, you know, down that journey today, I think, as historians. It wasn't enough to tell its Indigenous history, and it certainly wasn't enough to tell its environmental history. How has this ethical imperative changed and challenged the ways we do history in Australia, do you think?
0: I think we're beginning to learn how to tell an inside-out view of our continent, that the imperial view is an outside-in view. It's of a continent seen to be inhabited by people who, it was thought, didn't uh, use the land in the mm. way that Europeans properly recognized did Didn't have a history. Mm. Didn't have, um, by law, the kind of practices that would justify possession. And that... The continent was defined gradually by from by navigators from the outside, and then by explorers as they made their way on their linear tracks, with help from indigenous um, guides, as we know, but finding their way into the interior of the continent. But you know, very much this definition from outside in, and that made Australia a footnote to empire, really, mm. and that's how. Australian history was largely seen uh, in mid-20th mid century. And so what we've been learning, I think, in the last 50, 60 years of very exciting and, I think, revolutionary series of histories emerging, feminist history, environmental history, working-class history, history from below, social history, all of these revolutions changing the way we write history and, critically, Indigenous history, because now we I think, writing from the inside out. We're beginning to see Australia as... A continent long occupied, intimately known, by hundreds of different civilizations, and a series of bioregions, and those civilizations were uh, closely attuned to those bioregions, and that the settler revolution is still underway, and part of it is this moment we have now, which is, I think, exemplified by the Uluru statement, which is a, a challenge to 21st century Australians, can you recognise this yet? Are you willing to recognise this yet? That this continent has been so long inhabited and so deeply known that you, in order to live here long-term, are going to have to come to terms with those civilisations and with their deep knowledge of the land and the creatures that live upon it. So environmental history is part of this uh, quest for belonging of a settler nation.
1: Could that history only have happened in a place like Australia in a settler colonial society which had those specific questions that were being asked of it, do you think?
0: Well, I do think we've got a really unique challenge here, you know. This long Indigenous inheritance, this compressed settler revolution and a unique ecology. That's a superb, challenging trio, I think, mm. that generates a very different kind of history. We have to come to terms with civilization here that, that understands the very different kind of Indigenous societies that were, mm. that were and are still here
1: and the natural world in which we have all inhabited
0: indeed yes
1: thanks tom you've been listening to glam city with our special guest tom griffiths talking about his essay in griffith review 63 writing the country before we finally wrap up we do a Glam Slam segment, Tom, I don't know if you've been briefed on this, where we talk about what's coming up in our history diaries in the coming weeks. What is in your neck of the woods that you can't wait to get to see?
0: Well, I'm very pleased to be involved in May, it's the 23rd of May, uh, with an event at the National Museum of Australia, where I'll be speaking with um, Indigenous historian Bruce Pascoe and a number of others, too, about fire. It's part of the museum's uh, defining moments in Australian Mm -hmm. history. And I'm also participating in an event at um, the Australian National University about the moon.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Because it's the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 and the landing on the moon in 1969. and And ANU, the Research School of Humanities, has a series of lectures kicked off by our Vice-Chancellor, Brian Schmidt, Mm -hmm. um, about the moon. That started in March, and I'm participating in May on the 15th of May.
1: You have that fabulous anecdote of, of, for the first time, people looking back on the world from the moon in your essay. Yes. I sort of hadn't, you know, as someone who's grown up with that image in the back of my mind without even thinking about it, I hadn't really ever thought what a revolutionary image that was.
0: Yes, isn't that fascinating? I So, yes, that's that 1968, when Apollo 8, first of all, goes around lunar orbit, and the three astronauts behold the Earth.
1: They turn around.
0: And they see the Earth. And yeah. one of them, uh, Bill Anders, says, you know, we've come all this way to explore the Moon, and the most important thing is that we discovered the Earth. We are
1: now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth... The crew of Apollo Eight has a message that we would like
0: to send to you. And then they the spontaneously, in the morning, um, and, and Houston is surprised; they don't know this is happening. They spontaneously start reading the Book of Genesis out to what was then the most watched television program in history. God said, Let
1: there be light,
0: and there was light. And what they behold is, of course, this glowing, luminous garden in space, mm. clearly alive.
1: Mm. In my diary I am going to the Akira Isagawa exhibition at the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences which runs to the 30th of June but before then in early June I'm going on some fieldwork up to the Kimberley to look at different ways of writing country and using country to write history and thinking about some of those longer histories and deep time histories and how they can be incorporated into Australian national narratives. So lots of food for thought from this show thank you Tom that brings us to the close of Glam City for today thank you so much to Tom Griffiths for being our guest today you can find his essay along with others by Kim Mahood Claire Goholman even myself uh, and Tony Birch in the newest issue of Griffith Review number 63 Writing the Country it's available in bookstores all around the country or from their website griffithreview.com Glam out